On this week's edition of New York Now, New York is losing a seat in Congress by a razor-thin margin. We'll have details. Governor Cuomo, meanwhile, hits the road for a handful of in-person press events. We'll hear more from Bernadette Hogan from the New York Post and Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers. Then, Dutchess County Executive Mark Molinaro says he's still weighing another run for governor. He joins me to discuss that and more. And later, Republicans and environmental advocates are split on a new climate bill making its way through the state legislature. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass the law prohibiting it, and we will take them to court challenging it. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. New York is losing a seat in Congress for at least the next decade. That's according to the U.S. Census Bureau this week. And the reason is so, so disappointing. It turns out that if just 89 more people had been counted on the census in New York last year, we wouldn't be losing that seat. Listen to this for Monday. What we have is that if New York had had 89 more people, they would have received one more seat instead of the last state that received their last seat. And if you do the algebra equation that determines how many they would have needed, it's 89 people. And people are now starting to point fingers over why this happened. I mean, 89 people is a very small number compared to the state's population. According to the census, we now have more than 20 million people living in New York. That's more than 10 years ago, but we're not growing at the same rate as other states. And 89 people, that could be people who just moved out of New York or people who died from COVID or just people who chose not to fill out the census. And because that number is so small, Governor Cuomo said this week that the state may take legal action. Uh, do I think it was accurate to within 89? No. Uh, and we're looking at legal options because when you're talking about 89, I mean, that could be a, a, a minor mistake in counting, right? And speaking of Cuomo, he held his first open press events of the year this week in areas across upstate New York. And that's important because for the first time in several months, reporters were able to ask him questions in person. One of those reporters is with me now in studio. That's Bernadette Hogan from the New York Post. We also have Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers here. Thank you both for being here. Thanks. Thank you. So, Bern, I want to start with you because you went to the governor when he was in Syracuse. You went to him when he was in Johnson City, the Binghamton area. What was your experience like? And it's so weird that I have to ask that question because we haven't seen him in like four months. Right, I know. And even though we haven't seen him in person in four months, it seems like he's been omnipresent. But yeah, it was interesting because we haven't had an in-person press conference for reporters to attend, again, in person since the end of November, beginning of December. So he had a press conference in Syracuse at the State Fair. And it, it, honestly, it was normal. You know, you had... Chairs set up for the press to sit at and a bunch of cameras in the back and you were able to ask questions. The governor, again, as we've seen with the Zoom press conferences, he was joined by local officials and other people from the area. And afterwards he took questions from reporters. But what was different was that he's now being asked questions that he has not really been getting over these remote press conferences mm -hmm. and the way that that format has been. So that was interesting. And then he ended up having another day. He had Binghamton on Tuesday, which I also did end up going to, and same setup. He was at a vaccination site. He was making some announcements. And again, he took questions from the press. And this, I mean, again, he has not held these in-person pressers 
for several months, but he was kind of like getting himself back out there, which I mean, to his credit, he's held now, what, three, three press conferences in person with reporters this week, and who knows what he does today, but it, he is getting questions on things that he just has not answered on his own, as opposed to having aides respond to reporters, either via email or phone, et cetera. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's great to be there in person, to be able to ask your own questions and, and not have to rely on what other reporters do or what he ends up wanting to say of his own volition. Right, I should mention that we are taping on Friday morning. That's when we tape the round table <laughs> and other parts of the show. Kate, he was in Buffalo, as Byrne mentioned. He may be somewhere else today. How do you think it's going for the governor so far in his first I guess jump back into the public eye, the public versus uh, the the reporter kind of uh, persona that he's putting on. Uh, you know, it's been an interesting start, I guess, to to get going, especially the way, as Bernadette mentioned, like um, we were not notified in the Albany Press Corps in time uh, to to make it, and that's that's very important. The public doesn't know that a lot, right? That we we get the the schedule sometimes an hour if, if with some change in minutes um right to, it's to get... impossible to get to these places yeah and that's not something that just happened this week i should note that's something mm -hmm. that's historically been in the Cuomo administration they will give reporters either not enough time or just enough time to say you could have made it but i'm not gonna get in the car and drive to utica in mm -hmm. it would five minutes notice. Maybe I'm bad at my job. I don't know. Go ahead. I right. No, no, I, no, I appreciate that. Right. So it's been a trend and um, it's an important time that we're in. And uh, I think I've, I do give the governor credit for starting them this week, like you said he would. I, um, I am hoping they will continue. And it was really great, too, because you got to hear the discourse that we've been missing from these we say, I say briefings that we've been having the last few months. Some of them have just been kind of like a rally speech. Yes. Um, but this, it, the, the discourse of all the different issues that are going on from the investigations into the governor to we still have the pandemic going on, the vaccines to um, the budget just had wrapped up. So all uh, talking about all these different issues are so important for New Yorkers to hear about. And I was so glad that, that finally this conversation is happening again so that, you know, if we want to build that trust, if we talk about that, um, if they talk, if the government, government officials talk about that with, with their constituents, this is the way to do that. This is the way to start that. And um, so I hope, it, I hope it continues. I hope so too. Yeah. In the middle of all of this, there was a story from the Times this week Basically, another story about how the Cuomo administration withheld data on nursing homes for several months for presumably, it looks like political reasons or, or maybe appearance reasons. We don't really know because we haven't really heard from the administration on this. But, Byrne, what did we learn this week? Right. So, as you said, the New York Times published more evidence that the Cuomo administration were deliberately withholding information pertaining to COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. And this is something that we have known that they were doing again because of previous reports that the state had done their own, um, I suppose, review of nursing home deaths, et cetera, published a report back in July of 2020. But the Times produced more evidence that top officials, the governor's right-hand person, Melissa DeRosa, the Again, the number one, the, the person that's sitting next to him at the majority of these, uh, or as we've seen over the past year, the majority of these briefings. But anyway, she was very instrumental in saying, you know, look, look at this data. We have to figure out what to do, et cetera. And then also there were discussions, internal discussions that uh, 
the Cuomo administration was reviewing this data and going to send letters to the legislature who had been inquiring about these numbers that, again, had not been public. And, of course, more evidence that there were a high, there was a higher number of deaths in nursing homes than had been published. At the end of May, there was something like roughly 5,000 deaths attributed to COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes, but internal reports show that number was actually closer to 10,000. So it, 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 it again just shows, and something the governor has always said is follow the science, follow the data. Follow the facts. Follow the facts. You can have your own facts, but not your, or the other way around. You can have your own opinion, but not your own facts. Exactly. So these reports just show that the, the administration continuing to say that there's there's a disconnect there and the governor was asked about it yesterday and he tried to explain it a bit and he said something to the effect of we were concerned about the accuracy of the numbers mm -hmm. but at the end of the day of course no no one was under any impression that those numbers were going to stay the same. I mean, people, if they're dying every day and you're recording those figures, of course they're going to change. But the important part is that you do release those figures so you can track the change. And then, you know, whatever policy decisions have to be made by those in charge or, or to, to rectify issues that might have come up there, it's just important to have the data. So that, that report was very interesting. Again, it's just another, another chapter in this, this saga that we've seen. And that Maybe confirms book. the Attorney General's numbers, actually. Yeah. When you say the 5,000 exactly. or the 10,000, exactly. that's about 50%. Right. So Exactly. We do have to leave it there. We're out of time. So sorry. Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers, Bern Hogan from the New York Post. Thank you both as always. Thank you. So last week, we told you about a few of the Republicans considering a run for governor in New York. One of them is Dutchess County Executive Mark Molinaro, who you might remember ran against Cuomo in 2018. It's going to be a challenge for any Republican to win the race for governor in New York. There are more than twice as many enrolled Democrats as there are Republicans. But Molinaro says it's not out of reach. We spoke earlier this week. Mark Molinaro, thank you so much for being here as always. I'm glad to be back with you. Thanks very much. Of course. So there's a lot of buzz in recent weeks about the race for governor. We have Congressman Lee Zeldin, who's already declared you're one of several people considering a run. What's the status on that? Are you going to run for governor next year? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm flattered, certainly. There are a good number of folks who have asked me to consider running again, um, secured more votes uh, and, er, and won more counties uh, in 2018 than any, any challenger since 1994. Um, I've said this consistently, and, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, we are in the what I hope are the last weeks of grappling out of this pandemic. And my responsibility and my and my role as county executive is is really my priority. Uh, as as we get past that, uh, I'll be evaluating what what could come next. But I will say, and, and I think you you all know this, and, and your viewers uh, who at least uh, remember me uh, uh, know this as well. I, I truly believe in the ideal of public service. I have seen failures in Albany and in Washington that I think uh, uh, need to be addressed. And I do think that there's a role and responsibility for responsible, honest, earnest people to step forward and serve. There, so, so I'm considering what happens next. Uh, but something will happen next. Uh, it's just that uh, right now I'm focused on, 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 on getting shots in arms and helping businesses get back open and kids graduate from high school. There's a the host of responsibilities that we're focused on right now. So you ran in 2018, and I think it's fair to say that next year's race for governor is going to be very different from then, considering everything that's happening with the governor. What do you think Republicans need to do to convince middle-of-the-road voters and Democrats that may have supported the governor in the past to come to your side of the aisle and support a Republican running for governor? 
Well, listen, clearly any candidate running as a Republican needs to be able to speak to uh, to Democrats and, and moderates and those with no party affiliation in a way that has them trusting and believing that we can competently, fairly and honestly do the job in a way that represents them, too. No election is about the candidate. It rarely is. It's about the voters. And if you want to win, you've got to be sure that we're speaking to honest, hardworking New Yorkers in a way that has them trust we can do the job for them. And if they don't believe it in a state that is overwhelmingly Democratic, if they don't believe it, they're not going to give us the benefit of the doubt or the opportunity. And so if we can speak honestly about how we can solve those problems and, and get people working together to confront them, we have a chance to win. Uh, if we give voters an excuse to not trust us, not believe in us, it's going to be an uphill climb. Uh, and believe me, it, I know it's a steep one. So on that theme, we learned this week that New York is losing a seat in Congress because just 89 people weren't counted on the census last year. And it's something that Republicans have talked about for several years, and I think Democrats have as well. We do have an out-migration problem in New York State where people are leaving New York for other states like Texas and Florida. How do you think we should address that moving forward? I think there's a number of it, options, and everybody has different ideas, but I'd like to hear well, from you. Certainly, I appreciate it. And and so we didn't lose a congressional seat because 89 people didn't fill out their census form. We lost a congressional seat because 1.5 million people have decided not to live in New York over the last decade. And the result was confirmed by not having 89 people <laughs> couldn't finish that, that, that census form. And so we know we know what the, we know what the problems are. Um, we have a, a state government that is too bloated, too broken and too arrogant, just is. And the public that's that's leaving feels that they can't afford here they can't afford to stay here. There aren't housing opportunities for them. The education system isn't what they want for their children. And there isn't there, there aren't opportunities enough to grow and to afford to stay. We can provide really important services to those who are living in poverty. We can provide for communities and families that are living in fear because of violence. We can meet people and help them in, in support of housing and those living with disabilities. We can do that efficiently and do it affordably, too. What we've seen these last couple of months is this doubling down on spending more than we should, taxing more than people can afford, and borrowing against our future. That is just not healthy. The state is going to be financially, politically, and socially bankrupt if we don't take, take responsibility uh, and take real leadership in trying to make us affordable, accountable, and create opportunity for New Yorkers. Speaking of being socially bankrupt, there's a conversation happening in Albany right now about ethics reform because of everything that's happening with the governor. And you have spoken in the past about rooting out corruption in government. You were a member of the assembly at one point, and this has just been happening for decades. How do you think yep. the state should move in terms of trying to root out the corruption in state government that seems to just persist and persist? Well, I addressed this in 18, and I, and I still have the same belief. Um, first of all, uh, you, you've got to jettison Jacob uh, and create a truly independent ethics commission. It should include a judicial involvement. It has to have uh, the individuals who are not beholden to the administration, as Jacob basically is, and don't have the same uh, you know, ties to other political leaders. It has to have independence. Now, I also would would reestablish a Moreland Commission, and I'd put people like Preet Bharara and others in charge. I said this even at the time. Preet Bharara, uh, Zephyr Teachout. You find some of the some of the most uh, 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 some of the most brilliant minds, whether they agree on things or not. And you engage in a real unearthing uh, and an exposure of the culture of corruption that has continued uh, to paralyze uh, Albany. Uh, steal from taxpayers and benefit 
uh, elected officials, and you just uh, you just pull pull the layer uh, the, the the veil back layer by layer. You've got to root it out. You've got to expose it. You've got to shed sunlight on it. And I uh, I said this before. I'd give uh, the commission on on um, uh, open government some teeth too, because you need the ability to use multiple tools to hold elected officials accountable. And having a truly independent ethics committee commission, having a truly independent J, uh, uh, Moreland commission to root it out, identify it, bring charges and having some other oversight uh, and transparency is necessary. Before I let you go, you are president of the New York State County Executives Association. We are, are now more than a year into the COVID-19 pandemic and counties have really been on the front lines of addressing the crisis, both in terms of testing and now vaccines and just a lot of different things. Tell me how counties are doing right now. We just had the state budget pass. So obviously uh, you're kind of trying to assess right now how things are going to look moving forward. Yeah, and thanks for noting it. Listen, in this state, county governments are the public health response. The governor can have a briefing anywhere he wants in the state with or without you in attendance, although preferably with you in attendance. Uh, and it's county governments that have to effectuate the idea and the policy. We're focused on getting kids back to school, getting businesses open again, and trying to uh, rebuild the economy in this, in this new world. That's what county governments are focused on. I would tell you, though, we've long passed the time of uh, the governor uh, uh, announcing that you can have, uh, you know, if you're going to have a beer, you have to have uh, food. Uh, a restoration of local decision making uh, is critical. And I just would end by saying that, you know, we've often talked about state mandating county governments do things. We are mandated to be the level of government that makes those choices. The state for decades has said to county governments, based on public health concerns, you make these decisions. Uh, the state stripped that from us, they, they, and the governor assumed those responsibilities. It's long past time that counties be given that responsibility again so that we can make choices that work well within our regions uh, and get uh, and, and certainly uh, provide not only for public health, but for the, but the overall community health. All right, Dutchess County Executive Mark Molinaro, maybe a candidate for governor. We'll see. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Moving on now to some environmental news, advocates are trying to convince Democrats in Albany to pass a bill this year that would essentially tax fossil fuel companies and reinvest that money into communities hit hardest by pollution. But some Republicans have concerns. Our reporter Daryl Camp is here with more. Hey, Daryl. That's right, Dan. Senate Republican leader Rob Ort was joined by members of his conference on Wednesday in voicing his opposition to the Climate and Community Investment Act. That measure would impose a fee of $55 per ton of greenhouse gas emissions, which Ort believes will have a ripple effect that isn't being talked about. Currently, New York's gas tax is the seventh highest in the nation at 43.12 cents per gallon, with California currently the highest at 62.47 cents per gallon. This legislation will raise New York's gas tax to 98.12 cents per gallon. He says that fee will inevitably be passed down to consumers and lead to increased costs for everyday services like heating and transportation. Or it does not believe that the measure will actually help the environment, but Senator Pam Helming actually took it one step further. She said that Senator Kevin Parker, the bill's sponsor, is using this to galvanize votes as he runs for a different office in New York City. And Daryl, what office is uh, Senator Parker running for? He's actually running for New York City Comptroller. All right, well, thanks for that report, Daryl. Environmental advocates, meanwhile, say the CCIA would be a game changer for the state's climate justice strategy. And there's also been a lot of other environmental progress this year as well that you just might not know about. 
For more on that, I turned this week to Liz Moran, Environmental Policy Director at NYPERG. Liz Moran from the New York Public Interest Research Group, thank you as always for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Of course. So there's a lot going on in New York in terms of environmental priorities. And we are in April, which means that we've had four months of the legislative session already. The state budget just passed in early April. Tell me what you saw in the state budget from an environmental perspective. What were you satisfied by? Was anything left out? Yeah, this is such an important year for environmental priorities in New York State as Everyone is keenly aware we're still in the midst of a pandemic, and this pandemic has really highlighted just how important it is to prioritize environmental protections, to fund uh, environmental needs, especially as people are going outdoors more. Uh, we've become keenly aware just how important it is to have access to clean and safe water so we can wash our hands and prevent the spread of this illness. Uh, so this was a really key moment for the budget uh, because investing in the environment is also a really crucial way to put jobs and into our economy and get New Yorkers back to work. So there were a couple key things in the budget that show this is a priority for New York. Uh, first thing, uh, the legislature and the governor passed a $3 billion environmental bond act. We're really excited about this. This will go to voters in the fall of 2022. Next year. That's right. Okay. Um, and it will fund a variety of environmental needs. Uh, but what's critical about it is it'll fund the efforts we need to fight the climate crisis and to protect communities from what we're already seeing happen as a result of the climate crisis. New Yorkers are no stranger to increased flooding, uh, more severe weather. So this Bond Act is designed to fund those initiatives, including for things like water infrastructure. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. Is it stuff like a newer infrastructure in terms of roads, or is it like subsidies for car makers? I, I assume that that probably wouldn't be in there. Or is it just investing in production of cleaner, greener energy? It'll go for a combination of things. Some will be new programs, some will be towards existing programs. Um, one of the key pieces of this is funding to uh, protection of lands, lands that, like wetlands, for example. Wetlands are a natural barrier to protect water quality. Um, there's also another program that was included in this year's budget, the Clean Water Infrastructure Act. This is a multi-billion dollar program to fund a wide variety of water needs in New York State, which are huge. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been estimated over the next 20 years, we'll need to invest $80 billion in drinking and wastewater infrastructure alone. And wow. it, it, Yeah, and with the climate crisis, we're seeing these greater fluctuations in weather, we're seeing frequent water main breaks, there's gonna be more sewage overflows, so it's very important that we invest in this infrastructure uh, to make sure the quality of our water stays clean and that we aren't discharging uh, so much sewage into our waterways. Speaking of our future, we have a few months left in this year's legislative session. There, I think that the list of environmental priorities is endless until we have clean air, clean water, hopefully our kids can grow up healthy. What would you like to see lawmakers do before the end of this year's session? We have to fund the climate crisis. Now, I mentioned the Bond Act. That is one way to do it. But we firmly believe that it should not be everyday New Yorkers who have to pay to fight the climate crisis. 
there are well-endowed fossil fuel industries that spent billions of dollars over the course of decades lying about their role in causing the climate crisis. And frankly, they're the reason we are where we are today. So we believe they should be the ones to pay up. Now, there are a couple policies that are, have been proposed uh, that we feel should pass that would hold those polluters accountable rather than everyday taxpayers. That includes the Climate and Community Investment Act, the CCIA, which would create polluter penalties. And then the other way to do this is by ending fossil fuel subsidies. New York State gives approximately $1.6 billion away every year in tax subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. We really need to start chipping away at those tax subsidies uh, because why are we investing in an industry that we have to move away from? So the CCIA, the first one that you mentioned that you want them to do before the end of session, it would create polluter penalties. How does that work? Is it based on how much they emit, the size of the company? That's right. So it would be based on their pollution. Uh, so it would be both greenhouse gases and co-pollutants, which is really important because a lot of these industries um, have disproportionately polluted in black and brown communities and what we call environmental justice communities. And this has led to far worse climate impacts in those communities, far worse air quality in those communities. So it would establish a fee on that pollution, $55 per ton. And then a good portion of that funding would go back into those same communities to make sure that uh, there's a just transition. Uh, so those uh, folks in those communities are employed in the new green economy uh, and that justice is ultimately served to these communities. I assume that money would be used it, like what we were talking about before about water infrastructure in areas like that where uh, black and brown communities have really been left behind. That's exactly right. Uh, it would go towards things like uh, jobs programs to ha employ people from these communities in solar installation, for example. We work with a number of partners in New York City, uh, environmental justice groups that have set up programs like that. So it would go towards creation of more programs like that. All right, well, we will be watching that. Liz Moran, she's the environmental policy director at NYPIRG. Thank you so much, as always, for being here. Thanks, Dan. So in the weeks ahead, we'll be watching to see what happens on the environment in Albany, but we have to leave it there for this week. Don't forget to visit us online anytime. We're at nynow.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.